0: Hey, everyone. I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Growing up, I was a kid who liked to sit in the back of the class. See, my goal was to be as far away from the teacher as possible so as to maximize the amount of things that I could get away with. This usually only worked for like the first week or two of each new class because inevitably the teacher would catch me doing any number of inappropriate things and then move me to the front. In fact, this is how my wife Amy and I got to be such good friends in the sixth grade. She was always listening, always behaving, and generally a really good person, essentially the opposite of me in every way. So when it came time to move me to a different spot in the classroom, I was often moved right next to her. I think the hope was that her good behavior would rub off on me before my bad behavior rubbed off on her, an experiment that we are still awaiting the results for even today. (laughs) This happened in virtually every single one of my classes in sixth grade. Except one, Mrs. Klein's reading class. Now, I still got moved to the front of her class, but it happened on the very first day, instead of a couple of weeks later, and for a different reason entirely. You see, I love to read, and I still do. At that point in my life, the Hardy Boys were my favorite. I was all about the Hardy Boys. I bet I read 50 Hardy Boys books in sixth grade alone. Unfortunately, we weren't reading Hardy Boys in Miss Klein's class. That first day, she was asking each of us to read something she'd written on the board as a kind of assessment of all of our current reading levels. Looking back, it was kind of a cruel thing to do, to make all the kids read out loud in front of each other on the first day of class, but that wasn't really my issue as a sixth grader. My issue was that I couldn't see what she wrote from the back corner of her classroom. I couldn't see the board. So when my term came, I stumbled through my section as quickly as I could, and I prayed that I wouldn't be one of the kids summoned up to Miss Klein's desk after class. But sure enough, after everyone had finished reading, I was the first name she called. I sauntered up to her desk and sat down in the chair next to hers. She handed me a piece of paper with the same section I'd butchered earlier written on it. And she said, read this for me. And I read it easily and quickly and then I handed it back to her. She nodded and said, that's what I thought. Zach, you can read just fine. The problem is you can't see. You were squinting the whole time you were trying to read that section from the back corner of class. I immediately began protesting, claiming I could see just fine. You see, I was already kind of a chubby middle schooler, so I felt like adding glasses to the mix was not going to be a positive outcome for my whole popularity scheme that I'd been working on. But that's when Ms. Klein said something that I'll never forget. She said, you can probably figure out a way to get by without glasses in my class, but Zach, you can't make it in the world if you can't see. Now, I think Helen Keller and Stevie Wonder would probably disagree with that statement, but I understood her overall point. When something is obstructing our vision, either literally or figuratively, life becomes incredibly difficult. Now, Jesus knew this to be true. That's why when he laid out his mission statement at his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Recovery of sight for the blind. Now, helping the blind to see has a a dual meaning for Jesus. Through his ministry, we see him literally healing the blind so that they can see again, but we also see him causing metaphorical scales to fall from fully functioning eyes so that people can truly see who Jesus is and what he is all about. A great example of this is John Newton. You see, John Newton went from being a slave trader to an abolitionist. In 1772, he wrote the famous song Amazing Grace, which so beautifully describes this transformation that happened in his life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, it saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Remember what he says next? Was blind, but now I see. Newton was never literally blind, but he was blind to the horrors of the Atlantic slave trade until Jesus helped him see. And with his sight recovered, John Newton spent the rest of his life fighting for abolition. It is a powerful thing to move from blindness to sight. And honestly, it's a vital step for everyone who desires to follow Jesus. You see, many times we believe that this metaphorical recovery of sight only happens once. When we first admit that we need Jesus as our savior, he is the one who lived, died, and rose from the dead, and he's offering us this abundant life now and forever through his spirit, and we say yes to that offer, we, we kind of think that's the only time it happens. But that's just the first of many times that Jesus will clear the blindness from our eyes if we will allow him to. This is the hard work of deconstruction and reconstruction that we talk about so often here at Restore. You see, deconstruction is allowing Jesus to remove the blind spots from our lives. And reconstruction is allowing him to replace those blind spots with the correct way of seeing things, his way of seeing things. We all have blind spots, lies that we've believed both individually and collectively. And like we've said throughout our year in the life of Jesus, if we want to follow him in every area of our lives, we need to deconstruct those places where we're blind and reconstruct them with his sight, his truth. A huge area of blindness that affects much of the collective church today in the West is oppressive religion, oppressive religion. And the calling card of oppressive religion is that ultimately it is more concerned with power for the few than freedom for the many. See, what's so fascinating about oppressive religion is that it's timeless. Jesus' original audience was facing almost the exact same situation as we are today, I want you to listen to these characteristics of oppressive religion in both the first century and the 21st century that we're about to put on the screen and look at how it compares to the way of Jesus. See, oppressive religion is about power for the few, but the way of Jesus is about freedom for the many. Oppressive religion has a top-down structure, but the way of Jesus, he says, the first shall be last. Oppressive religion controls people through guilt and shame, but the way of Jesus abolishes guilt and shame. Oppressive religion excludes anyone it can, but the way of Jesus includes everyone. Oppressive religion pushes people down. The way of Jesus lifts people up. Oppressive religion is complicit in slavery and marginalization and other horrors that we've experienced in our country and in our world. But the way of Jesus fights against those horrors, fights against slavery and marginalization of all people. And lastly, oppressive religion judges everyone else's shortcomings, but the way of Jesus examines our own shortcomings. It's introspective. It's personal. It looks within. Oppressive religion says the problem is out there. It judges other people. The way of Jesus says, maybe I can improve. Maybe I can more fully follow in the ways of Jesus. Maybe I have blind spots that I need to address That last one is the focus of Jesus in this section of the Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at today. So we're going to be in Matthew's account of Jesus' life, starting in verse 1 of chapter 7. You can turn there with us, or the verses will also be on the screen. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now this word plank that Jesus uses here is more literally translated crossbeam. These were industrial-sized pieces of wood that were used in major construction. These were big, big things. When the big cross-beam plank is in our eye, we are simply unable to see. Unable to see the difficulties in our own life, the difficulties of other people's lives. We are only focused in on what oppressive religion tells us to focus in on, which is that the problem must be out there, not internal. See, oppressive religion blinds us to our own sin by shifting the focus onto the much lesser shortcomings of others. Let me say that again. Oppressive religion blinds us to our own sin by shifting the focus onto the much lesser shortcomings of others. We become obsessed with someone else's speck and we ignore our own crossbeam. Oppressive religion also causes us to be blind to systemic and structural sin by shifting the focus onto the negative results that are caused by them inside of individuals. For instance, those blinded by oppressive religion will often criticize an individual person in poverty for their economic condition, but deny the existence of any external forces which led to poverty in the first place, not just in that individual, but on a widespread basis. In oppressive religion, all of the problems in this world are out there. They are the fault of someone else. And subsequently, oppressive religion teaches that if we could just rid our communities of those people who are at fault, the problems would go away. This is why oppressive religion so often kicks people out rather than welcoming people in. Richard Rohr, a pastor and monk, discusses this at length in his newest book called The Wisdom Pattern. Here's what he says about those who follow the way of Jesus. He calls them resurrected people versus those who are blinded by oppressive religion. Here's what he says. Resurrected people prayerfully bear witness against injustice and evil, but also agree compassionately to hold their own complicity in that same evil. It's not just over there, it is here. It is our problem, not theirs. It gives us, strangely enough, a very false sense of control and superiority because we've spotted the evil, and thank God, it's over there. As long as they are the problem, we can keep our focus on changing them, correcting them, expelling them as the contaminating element, then we can sit in a reasonably comfortable position. But it's a position that the saints called Pax Penercoge, a dangerous and false peace See, it feels like peace, but it's not a true peace. It is the peace of avoidance, denial, and projection. He says, one day, the mainline Christian movement will recognize, will itself recognize that Jesus was never into expelling and excluding, only transforming and integrating. In fact, you might say that for Jesus, the very act of expulsion is the problem. See, Jesus came to overturn the tables of oppressive religion, not so that he could expel anyone that was blinded by it, but so that he could restore their sight and show them the abundant light that he has for them and for every single other person. One of my very favorite quotes of all time is from a Puerto Rican pastor and activist named Carlos Rodriguez. Here's what he says. As soon as you draw a line to exclude people, Jesus goes to the other side of that line with them and invites you to join him there. Every time. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized every single time, but he also invites everyone to join him there. Jesus never scolds and then walks away. He never yells and then turns his back. He always, always, always invites us to join him on the side of love. This is why Jesus calls us to the hard work of deconstructing the industrial crossbeams of oppressive religion. Because oppressive religion hurts everyone. Like he said in his mission statement, he has come to bring freedom to the prisoners, the shackled oppressed and the shackled oppressor. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't just give us this command to remove the plank and then walk away. He tells us how to do it. Verse seven, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Jesus is on this deconstruction, reconstruction journey with us. He has good gifts in store for us because he is a good father who cares deeply about his kids. We can take confidence in the fact that he promises support and open doors if we will seek him. So what does it look like to walk with Jesus on this deconstruction, reconstruction journey? How do we ask, seek, and knock? Well, I think it's those three things. I, I love those three verbs that Jesus articulates. They aren't a formula, but I think they give us three very practical steps to take, practical action steps. First, we ask. And I think this is simply prayer. Asking God to show us our blind spots. Asking him to reveal the planks, the cross beams in our own eyes. Seeking him. Asking him. Spending time with him in relationship, prayerfully. Not just talking, but listening too. You See, prayer is two-way. We don't just talk the whole time and then say amen. If you called your friend, you wouldn't just talk to him the whole time, say bye, and then hang up the phone. There's a listening time too. So as we talk and listen in prayer with God, as we ask through prayer, he will meet us there. That's number one. Number two, It says we seek. I think this is study, studying scripture, studying resources that help us to better understand scripture and and the things of this world, seeking wise counsel of friends and family members, seeking community around us to process these things with. We seek out these ways These things that God has given us that he has already put into our lives, our church family, our actual family, our friends, Scripture. And when we do that, when we seek him, we seek his guidance and leading in those places, he promises, promises to show up. That's number two. And then last, number three, we knock. I really think this is exploration. This is coming to a door, knocking on it, opening it up, walking through it, and looking around at this world that God has created. The author of Proverbs tells us to go and study the ant. In his letter to the church in Rome, Paul says that God's invisible qualities can be seen throughout all of creation. When we go on an exploration, God shows up. The rocks and the trees cry out. When we commit ourselves to asking, seeking, and knocking, he shows up. Again, this is not a formula. These are really more like spiritual practices, rhythms we should be engaging with on a regular basis as we move through the deconstruction and reconstruction process. And if you're looking for a filter to run everything through, everything you hear when you ask, everything you find out when you seek, everything you learn about when you explore and knock, Jesus gives us one. He ends this section by reiterating his most fundamental teaching in verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. So this has become known as the golden rule, but it echoes the greatest commandment, right? What is the greatest and most important thing? Love God and love others. What is the central teaching and command from Jesus? Love others the way he has loved us. He is reminding us. That in the end, freeing humanity from oppressive religion is important to him because oppressive religion hurts people. And we're not called to hurt people, we're called to help people. Think about how the church would be transformed if Christians really committed to doing this. Like my friend Tasha Morrison says, we would become the headlights leading the way on things like justice and equity and compassion instead of the taillights breaking and slowing all of it down as we so often have done. So let's ask, let's seek, let's knock, and then let's allow Jesus to restore our sight to show us those blind spots that we have. Let's do the hard work of deconstructing the ways of oppressive religion that hurt ourselves and everyone around us, not because it's popular, not because it's politically correct, but because y'all. That's the way of Jesus. And that is what he has called us to. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for this incredible sermon. God, you didn't often, when you were here as Jesus, didn't often stop and, and teach in these really long segments. It's a, a parable here, a, a teaching here. But God, I'm so grateful for the Sermon on the Mount, the clarity with which Jesus speaks to us, the clarity with which we get to see you as the incarnate Savior, God in the flesh, and hear your words for us. And we love you so much. Work in us. Show us those blind spots. Remove the planks from our eyes, God, so that we can engage in the work that you have for us all throughout the world.